This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. When did World Cup fever hit you? A long chat about Middle Eastern politics with Jeremy Bowen, Morgan Freeman's I am not one of you, but I fight like one of you. Or was that Robin Hood? A marginal offside decision denying Ecuador an opening goal. Today I feel like Katara, amusingly bad. Today I feel like they needed a longer training camp. Today I feel like Enna Venencia didn't get Gianni's memo. Today I feel like a lot of people left to beat the rush. We'll discuss that utterly bizarre opening speech from Infantino. It's okay. Brian Swanson assures us that the head of FIFA really does care. We'll react to Beckham's silence as Joe Lysett shreds the cash and the fact Harry Kane might not be able to wear his one love armband after all. We'll look ahead to tomorrow's openers for England-Wales. How early will hashtag Southgate out be trending? And elsewhere, there's a big win for Everton. We delve deep into Gillingham's problems in front of goal. Answer your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today for our first of our World Cup daily pods, Troy Townsend, hello. Hello, Max. Uh, Lars Siverton, hello. Hi, Max. And Barry Glendening, welcome. Good evening. Uh, first off, let's go to the stadium where Ecuador beat Qatar 2-0. Jonathan Wilson is at, at the stadium uh, at full time. How was that for you, Wilson? Well, it was, it was very, very strange. It didn't feel like the opening game of the World Cup. But you had the, the opening ceremony, you had Morgan Freeman, uh, you had that K-pop lad. And then the game started and you realise Qatar are absolutely dreadful. And you sort of, you know, logically, they can't be that bad. They're the Asian champion. They, they got the semi-final of the Gold Cup. But the first half, you see, completely overwhelmed. It was 2-0, but you sort of felt like they could put their foot down. It could have been anything. And second half, you know, it was deadly quiet by half-time. Second half, there was thousands and thousands of empty seats. Uh, the sort of the, the official Qatari fans uh, behind the goal that the two goals went into they, they were there and they were quite noisy, but apparently most of them are from Lebanon. They're not, they're not actually Qatari. They've, they've been bussed in. Um, and by the end, I think the stadium was maybe a third full. Uh, the second half was incredibly, you know, played at walking pace. Almost if Ecuador was sort of too polite to win too easily. And the, the, the place was just, apart from the sort of the official fans, was incredibly quiet. You've been to so many World Cups and major competitions. Does this feel completely sort of different to all of them? Yes. 
I mean, the, the stadium's a little bit combinations in that it's this massive stadium in the middle of nowhere and you just go along roads forever and there's nothing there. It's just sort of, you know, scrub and desert. Um, and then, as I say, with a huge car box around it, like all the official branding and, and, and all the logos and everything, all these sort of little tents um, that you get everywhere. So it's not necessarily a, a sort of Qatari thing. You get, you get them in conservation as well. But you just sort of think, what's it here for? What's it going to be used for? And you know, the, the whole sort of idea that this might stimulate some kind of indigenous type of culture just seems like total nonsense after that game. Uh, you can't imagine the stadium ever be remotely full ever again once this tournament's over. We'll analyse the game in detail with the rest of the panel, but, but we didn't see the opening ceremony, at least if you're watching the BBC, you didn't. Uh, how was it? Well, Morgan Freeman was there. It was quite exciting. Uh, obviously, no hard feelings. Having him, yeah, he was part of the USA bit that was beaten, but I guess the buddies uh, persuaded him to turn up. There was all this guff about football bringing people together, and um, then it's quite a telling phrase. Like, what, what was it that he said? Uh, there was loads of stuff about you know, the stadium looks like a tent. There was also about, oh, it's a big tent, and the whole world's here. Then there's this one line instead of accepting a new way, we demanded our own way, which, which felt pretty pointed given how things have gone in the last week. Uh, but how the K-pop lads? I don't know. Like, I guess it is good if you like that kind of thing. Uh, there's all the usual sort of representation of shirts and fireworks and light shows. It, it, it was okay. It wasn't bad. There weren't many people here for it, which might be to do with the, the traffic jams outside, which were, were pretty bad. I think, I, I mean, I got here about three, three and a half hours before kickoff. Which is later than I hope, but I, I think I just missed the worst of the traffic. Then it was full by kickoff, but like, that's that was a striking thing for me. It was like by by half time, it was half empty. You're rooming with Barney Ronne Wilson. Yeah, I know it's early days in the tournament. How is that? How's that going? As you can imagine, it's a it's a great privilege. Uh, it's an honour. Uh, no, he, I, 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 he's very well house trained. He's done his share of shopping so far. He's, he makes the coffee, puts things away. But like, yeah, no complaints. It's. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's the, the most um, buoyant or optimistic or joyous of flats, but I quite enjoy a good moment. <laughs> Wilson, in, in an odd couple type scenario, which of you is the fastidious, tidy, clean one, which I would be, and which one is the slob? Which one do you think would be the, 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 the clean and more fastidious one? I reckon it's probably you. Yeah, it is. He's, he's not too. I mean, he's he's, he's not the golden lady. Put it that way. Well, look, Wilson. We'll, look, we'll let you go. We know you've got to go to the present stuff. You're doing the England game tomorrow. No, I'm doing Sunday Gold Netherlands tomorrow. Right. Okay. Well, uh, enjoy that, and we will catch up as and when the tournament progresses. But thanks for coming on, mate. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Jonathan Wilson there, uh, out in Qatar. So then, let's analyse that game uh, in a bit more detail. Dave says, if you'd spent $220 billion on a World Cup, would you have spent the 12 years of prep time making sure you had someone who could play in goal? Um, given all the talk, Barry, of Qatar's pre-match training camps, the Aspire Academies, etc., they were brutally bad in this football match. Yeah, um, absolutely abysmal effort from them. And I, I tend to, I'm inclined to agree with Wilson that I suspect that it... They're they're better than that. I wouldn't imagine they're much better, but 
that was awful from them. Uh, an embarrassing performance in an opener from the host nation. Uh, maybe the players were a bit overwhelmed with nerves, which is understandable. The fact that they haven't played any competitive football for several months showed. And they were very lucky to only lose 2-0, I, in my opinion. I, you know, I, I saw people on Twitter wondering, are they the worst team ever to play the World Cup? I don't know is the answer. I can't remember. There may well have been worse than them, but they were pretty bad. Lars, is it given that everything we've said about Qatar and, and what happens in the country and off the pitch stuff almost feels an extension that you sort of, I don't know if this is right, sort of want Qatar to be bad, but should we separate those two things and almost almost feel sorry for those players? I absolutely think we should separate those things. And actually, I thought Barney wrote something during the game that was uh, that was worth pondering a little bit. I mean, Barney writes on Twitter, I feel sorry for the Qatari players. They have frozen here, but the moment is just so huge. 12 years in the making, high level for them. These guys are carrying a lot of weight, not of their own making. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And it's kind of, I want to resist the temptation to be too harsh on them. But then again, that becomes slightly patronizing, right? At the end of the day, this is a team that that won the Asian Cup, that beat Japan and beat South Korea in the Asian Cup, who who played in the Copa America and were not terrible. I remember watching them play Paraguay and, and playing reasonable football in that tournament. And it was clear that in the first half in particular, you know, these are players who can normally trap the ball. These are players who can normally play simple passes. So there must have been the, the mental aspect of it and the weight of the occasion must have been a factor here. There's a side issue, which is that for a team who wants to play kind of like a possession focused game, a team like Ecuador is a really nasty opponent because they're so physical. They get in your face. They attack very directly. They counter very well. So they're they're bad opponent for Qatar. But I think all of that is almost... Uh, you know, it becomes a side issue to the fact that they were just not at the races at all in that first half. Yeah, and I guess, Troy, you know, it's like England-Iceland, right? Teams can be shit, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, that, that is a truism of any team, right? I'd, I'd like to add, and, and I'm showing my age, Zaire, 1974, to that list of really right, poor but- nations. Um, uh, Yugoslavia 9-0 although they only lost 2-0 to Scotland and Brazil so I'm not quite sure what happened in that game but uh, listen I thought that yeah the whole enormity of the kind of opening game was too much for the team um, they settled down in the second half they 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 spent some time on the ball I would say without really hurting them but you know we could be talking about a different game if that goal goes if that headed chance goes in um, just before half time, and and who knows what might have happened after that. But yeah, it was um, it was a lot in the making, and it seemed like it took the wind out the players. And it seemed like Ecuador, if they needed to step up, they could have stepped up at any stage. Um, but I think they did well in conserving their energy. Um, it's it, Ecuador hoping for a longer tournament than Qatar, and so they strolled through the second half and um, deserved their victory. Can I interject that it actually? I'm almost more disappointed with the second half for Qatar because I can understand on a human level that, you know, it's this thing that's so big for the country and and, and it's 12 years in the making and all the money on stadiums and all the things. And here you are on a human level. You can understand how that would get to you and, and that you come up against this super aggressive, really physical team and it all goes wrong and everyone, the blood goes and everything. 
But then you get to the second, to the halftime, you can all have a chat, you can all settle down. We're in this now. We got nothing to lose anymore. Let's just go out and do something. And Qatar and Ecuador clearly sat back and just let them have the ball a bit and just do what you want. Yeah. And they just had nothing. That there was just there, there was just so little from them in the second half. And that that I find almost harder to 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 I guess forgive is a very big word, but <laughs> but understand I guess I was very very disappointed with that side of it. No, you make a good point. I mean, the second half literally finished five minutes ago. I can't remember anything (laughs) at all. Uh, On the other side of the coin, Barry, this was the the Anna Valencia story, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, he he scored two. He was very unlucky not to get a hat-trick. Obviously, when that first goal was ruled out after two minutes and 49 seconds, for no obvious reason... There were cries of conspiracy and that the the fix was in, etc. and so on. But it turns out that, yes, there was an offside in the build-up. It was one of those very marginal ones that... I, I don't think anyone would have objected if the goal had been given, but it was offside. The, the decision was correct, although... There are hundreds and thousands, if not millions of people on social media who were convinced otherwise. Um, So, yeah, he was unlucky that one wasn't given. Uh, Got the penalty. I thought the goalkeeper, Saeed Al-Sheeb, who who had a very poor game, he was lucky not to get sent off because he made no attempt to play the ball. But he he got away with a booking. Valencia took a very cool penalty. He waited for the keeper dive and then put the ball in the other corner and then his second goal was an absolutely brilliant header yeah he got so much power behind it from a position where it looked like he wouldn't be able to he was helped by the fact that he wasn't marked but but it was a wonderful header uh, from an excellent whipped cross from Preciado so he he had an outstanding start to the the tournament he he looked like he'd got a nasty knee injury and eventually went off injured, but hopefully it won't be too bad. Yeah, he's now the Ecuador's highest scoring player in World Cup history, moving ahead of Augustin Delgado. He's got five, Delgado three. He now has as many World Cup goals as Zinedine Zidane, Zico and Jeff Hurst. Uh, so he's in, uh, he's in half decent company. I guess it's quite hard, Troy, to work out if Ecuador are good or not still, isn't it? Max, you can only beat what's in front of you. You know, they would have had a nervous start as well, thinking that, you know, they're in Qatar, it, they're playing the host, it's the World Cup, you know, but, but they were on the front foot straight away. And I thought, you know, they the way they controlled the game, not only in the first half, but also in the second half, as, we, as we've already mentioned, leaving some in the tank as well to make sure that the players are are fit and well, to go, and hopefully fit and well in Valencia's case, to go and approach their second game. I thought they did very, very well. Um, yes, there's going to be harder tests to come, but you've got to win and you've got to beat what's in front of you. And I think they did that, and they did that really well, which will give them the confidence moving into the the the, the, the bigger games against Senegal and Holland, obviously. As Wilson alluded to, fans leading the stadiums, the stadium's quite interesting, Lars, isn't it? Miguel Delaney saying now thousands of empty seats. Rory Smith, I would guess the stadium has been two-thirds full for most of the second half. That feels like it's a, quite a generous estimate doesn't necessarily bode well for what already feels like a weird World Cup. Yeah, and it was a good example of why it's a good idea for for actual journalists to go and cover these events because it was 
I was watching sort of my timeline on Twitter and you had the journalists who were there posting photos of all the empty seats. And meanwhile, on the sort of uh, on the broadcast feed, you kept having close ups of the fans who were there saying, oh, they're making a great atmosphere. So, I mean, it is there is a there is a value to having people there telling us what is actually going on as opposed to what they're trying to like portray it as in, in the, on the official feeds here. But Lars, they're they're all hypocrites because they're <laughs> yeah, enjoying five-star hospitality. Share, sharing a house with Barney. Nothing's more five-star than that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also given the speech about how it's a big tent and we're all in it. And it's all a party for everyone. I feel like slightly contrary to that spirit if everyone fucks off the minute you're losing. It's not, it's not really good. If everyone's having a party together, presumably could at least stay to the final whistle, even though your team aren't aren't winning. Just yeah, I don't know. We, I was at that Spurs-Ajax game in 2018 or whatever at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, and it's a right bind to leave. And I must admit, by about 60 minutes, when Spurs were getting actually hammered with no chance of getting to the final, I was like, oh, I could sneak off. I could sneak off now and you know walk walk to the bus stop to get the the uh, the two four three. Would you leave half an hour early in the opening match of a World Cup in your home country under any circumstance? <laughs> no, I probably I, I don't probably think wouldn't. I would. No, but, but the traffic did look absolutely horrendous on the way in, didn't it? You know, there's no metro going to that stadium, and actually, it's fascinating to see, having not known a lot about. I know all these stadiums have been built, but they've literally built that stadium and just not built anything else anywhere near it. Like, it looks like it's on on Mars. Isn't that going to be the massive problem because the, the, the distance between all the stadiums and the times that the kickoffs are at is going to make, it, it, there was only one game today um, mm. and the traffic was as, as reported that bad. So I wonder what it's going to be like when we start having three and four games and, you know, people crossing paths to get from one game to another, etc. Um, I wonder how well that will be reported. But this lastly is one thing, a point I'd like to make about the Qatari team. And there's nothing against them, especially because they are what they are. And again, as we've covered, their international results in recent years are decent. And I think they're better than what they showed here. But this game is also an example of why I think international football is great. Because it is one point, sort of small sliver of internet of modern football, where money doesn't actually magically fix everything for you. You, no matter how wealthy your country is, you cannot just go out and buy yourself a good international team. You are what you are, and I, I think that's uh, why it remains a tremendous antidote to to some of the ills of of the modern club game. Um, Azra says on a perhaps less important note, our Qatar managed by a Spanish Steve Clark. I did wonder for a second if it was Steve Clark who's not. Of- <laughs> I thought Spanish Danny Murphy. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, it could have been. We're just listing people with slightly <laughs> less hair than me, but actually, no, not, no, he, actually no, no. not that much I, less hair than me. Actually, really. I, I take it. I, I, I take my agreement back. He did look a bit like Steve Clark. He looked absolutely nothing like Danny no? Murphy. Is uh, oh, well. uh, uh, my my take on that? Yeah. Anyway, look, that'll do. That'll do for part one and the opening game. Part two, we'll begin with uh, Gianni Infantino's version of "I Have a Dream." Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST.
welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Thanks for you know all the kind comments you've made about the specials that we did in the build-up to this tournament. Martin says, where is the World Cup special on the treatment of ginger slash freckled people? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. Uh, so yesterday's Yanni Infantino uh, went on a sort of virtually hour-long um, uh, speech, which is meant to be a Q&A, like little hello, here we are, ask your questions. But it wasn't a whole lot of time for questions because he did this extraordinary speech. Today I feel Qatari. Today I feel Arabic. Today I feel African. Today I feel gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel like a migrant worker. Of course, I'm not Qatari. I'm not Arab, African, gay, disabled. I feel like it because I know what it means to be discriminated against, to be bullied as a foreigner in a foreign country. As a child, I was bullied because I had red hair and freckles. Plus, I was Italian. So imagine. I, I'd like to say, Max, that yes. as a longtime member of this podcast, I also know what it feels like to be discriminated <laughs> and bullied as a foreigner in a foreign country <laughs> and hold you largely culpable for that. <laughs> okay. Can I apologise to you, Barry? Uh, if you, if it's a sincere apology and you don't do it in a cod Irish accent while <laughs> okay, miming, waving a knobbly stick. <laughs> um, I mean, besides, it, it was so ludicrous, Troy, that it became funny, but there is something actually, from my point of view anyway, utterly grim about Infantino sitting there and saying, today I feel like a migrant worker. I get what you mean about funny, but I found nothing funny about his words. There was an arrogance and ignorance um, and a privilege to the way that he spoke that leans towards his status, his wealth. I think Germany have spoken out about him. So are we accepting this man as the leader of, of world football um, because of that power, because of that privilege? And I've got to be honest, and I know Brian Swanson, and I've had a lot of good chats with Brian and he's always seemed to be invested in this space. I was just as disappointed as his with his comment. So like, Brian Swanson used to work at Sky Sports News uh, as a reporter. I didn't know him particularly well, but I sort of bumped into him, seemed like a nice guy, now head of comms for, for FIFA. And he said, I'm sitting here as a gay man in Qatar. Uh, we have received assurances that everyone will be welcome here. I believe everyone will be. Um, just because he, Infantino, is not gay doesn't mean he does not care. He does. You see the public side and I see the private side. I've thought long and hard about whether I should say this. I do feel strongly about it. We care about everyone at FIFA. I have a number of gay colleagues. I'm fully aware of the debate, fully respect people's opinions. When he says we are inclusive, he means it. I mean, I agree with you, Troy. It sounded to me like somebody. The whole point being, if he was a Qatari man sitting there, he couldn't say those things because of, and we've established this on a pod last week, you know, that community is persecuted and live in fear and he isn't. And basically, it's like a lot of people, human rights matter until you get paid a whole lot of money and then exactly. it doesn't. But this is a, this is a man who, and I, I, listen, it's your boss. I understand it in a little way. But then we've got on record his comments, we, you know, and these are not the first comments. And this is also the man that didn't want politics, you know, wanted everyone to put politics aside for a month whilst the World Cup was going on. This is also a man that said North Korea could potentially host something as well. Everything that came out of his mouth was a massive worry to me. Everything that came out of his mouth. And what I don't understand is... Does he sit down with Brian? And I've often said this. It's not just about Brian. It's often about comms, you know, directors of comms in those big, powerful positions when their leader is going out to speak to a massive audience. Do they sit down with him and say, right, that will be OK. Yeah, that should be fine. Or do they just go, forget the script. I know what I'm going to say. And they put out what they say and then the backlash is there. Because 
for me, Brian's only there to, to deflect the backlash. Um, and it seemed like that's what he was. That's what he was doing. But I, I honestly, I, I don't know where we... I know he picked up the mic again just before kickoff today. I'm not sure if everyone wanted to hear from him anymore. But for me, he's an absolute disgrace, which means that the body that he represents becomes a disgrace. And that's not everyone within that body, but he's the leader. He's the one that's front and centre. And for me, as a as the most powerfulest man in football uh, or person in football, then... Pff, now, where are we going? What are we doing? And I'm sure we're going to hear more comments throughout the course of the, of the competition as well. He said, Infantino, we've been told many, many lessons from some Europeans from the Western world. I think what we Europeans have been doing for the last 3,000 years, we should be apologising for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons to people. And Infantino has support, right? He, you know, the head of CAF in Africa is one of his guys. He's, you know, they, they, you know, he is behind Infantino. Um, chatting to Tim Vickery about Commable, you know, they have, they supported that FIFA statement saying, get on with it. You know, he, he in many ways was talking to his, the people who support him as much as he was talking to us, I guess. And, and isn't the point, Troy, that it is right for some people to say, right, that the West have to answer about their colonial past. Of course they do, right? That is, of, of that, there is no doubt. But that is not, that is not a way of justifying the human rights abuses in Qatar, right? Or the way that FIFA won't compensate the families of dead migrant workers. When we speak in this space and when we do direct our comments about the way the World Cup was was decided and, and the kind of financial incentives that were around at the time and then you get Seb Platter coming out and saying, well, yeah, it was about money. Um, of course, we're going to also reflect and understand that we don't have a great record. Uh, we'll talk about England here. And uh, we've only got to look at what our government have been like over the last few years, how we've talked about various different uh, communities in certain ways, how we've mimicked those communities um, in certain ways and, and, and everything that's going on right near Dover at the moment. You know, so no, we, we, we can't sit on a high horse, but that doesn't mean that we stay quiet. That doesn't mean that we don't raise points um, that are absolutely relevant in, in, in this time and in this space. I was watching the, the broadcast today and there were some stats that came out around how many deaths there was working on the World Cup. And obviously the data is limited. The Qataris have said that there was only three, three deaths working on this World Cup. Many people are saying how many more deaths there has been um, and people that have not gone home, you know, after a day's work. And I just cannot comprehend that. As someone that's lost a child, I cannot comprehend why you would hide that. You know, these are human beings. These are lives that are being lost to build stadiums. These are people who come home and put their wage packet on the on the desk and actually it's not going to feed their families. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed for them, although I don't think they will be embarrassed, but I'm embarrassed f for them and the nature and the way that they speak in this space about human beings um, who basically have helped put on this World Cup, this show for the world. The German FA are abstaining from the vote. Infantino is basically standing alone. There's no one to contest the, the role of head of FIFA. Uh, head of German FA Bernd Neuendorf said, many associations have already signaled their support for the incumbent. Nevertheless, with this decision we want to express, we would have liked FIFA to have made a clearer commitment to human rights and a greater commitment to humanitarian issues. Amnesty International said, in brushing aside legitimate human rights criticisms, Jenny Infantino is dismissing the enormous price paid by migrant workers to make, this flag, to make his flagship tournament possible, as well as FIFA's responsibility for it. Uh, demands for equality, dignity and competition cannot be treated as some sort of culture war. They're universal human rights that FIFA has 
committed to respect in its own statutes. On a sort of less important note, they reversed their decision, Barry, to, to sell beer at the stadiums. Uh, Benji said, will this World Cup become the fire Festival? Um, I, I suppose the interesting part of this is, A, not, not, not just, you know, FIFA's relationship with Budweiser, not that that particularly bothers me, but, you know, sponsors, you know, do give a lot of money and that's quite a big issue for them. It, it's the fact, isn't it, that the Qatar Supreme Committee and Qatari government can just change their minds on things pretty quickly. And, and that could actually have an impact on more important things than whether you can get a pint at a game. Yeah, I personally couldn't care less whether I can have a pint at a game or not, uh, particularly if the only option is Budweiser. But if they're prepared to change their mind on that, you have to worry about what else they'll change their mind on, what other promises they've made will they renege on. And it's also interesting that when FIFA roll into town to, to stage a World Cup or roll into a country, they are in charge always. It's the country is obliged to march to the beat of FIFA's drum. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. And A, you have to wonder why. And B, you know, it is clear it, it is Qatar and not FIFA who are running the show here. That's never happened before. FIFA don't tolerate this kind of insubordination from other host nations. I mean, the reference point here is is Brazil, right? Where they had uh, made bear sales at football illegal to, to sort of curb uh, crowd trouble and before... The, the World Cup in 2014, FIFA put tremendous amounts of pressure on Brazil to make sure that was reversed for the World Cup because, of course, for sponsorship reasons and all of that, uh, it is interesting to note that uh, Doha-based uh, Gianni Infantino's FIFA has not decided to do the same this time around. Max, can, can I just say, sorry, just last piece, and, and yeah. by yes, chance sure. read a thread from Rob Davies, who is a reporter at The Guardian. So, yeah, and I thought in regards to that, you know, us not talking about, you know, what we're doing yeah, yeah, yeah. here and, and, and uh, you know, raising various different points. I thought there was a great thread by him about how we cannot stand on our high hall. So it'd be good if, if people then want to question anything that we've said here to have a look at that piece and maybe reflect on it a little bit. Because, you know, over here, we fund a lot of what the Qataris do in many, many different ways. Not only do we take money for them, we also give them quite a bit of money in certain ways as well. So that that could be a very good read for, for people. It's worth being aware of this, but also you, Troy Townsend, are not selling arms to countries in the Gulf and that sort of thing. I mean, as individuals, we're allowed to disagree with some of these things. I mean, we're not in charge of the government. Like the the the, the, the current government of Great Britain is not the sort of, I don't, I, even, I don't think the people who live here consider them to be a, an, an ultimate and absolute moral arbiter of what, what they agree with and what should be done and what shouldn't be done. So, so for sure, we should be self-aware. But I think sort of the argument that our, our government and companies in our countries interact with these countries, that doesn't nullify our ability to disagree and, and, and with various practices and think that the whole tournament is essentially shameful. I mean, we pointed that earlier, but you make a really good point. I'm also really pleased that you've just uh, exonerated me from any kind of arms deal that there is out there at the moment. <laughs> Yes. I was just going to say, it is weird that Kick It Out have a sideline in selling inter-ballistic missiles. To... But it's just, out of all these debating points you, you hear from uh, from no people on the internet, that's the one that annoys me the most. It's like, if, if the country you're in has any dealings with a certain country, then automatically, mm -hmm. apparently, yeah. you can't disagree. It doesn't no. make any sense. And also, we do, like, literally, like, we've done podcasts holding 
you know, people to account in this country. Like that is, that's, that's part of it, right? We, we, and you have the capability to do that and say that. And the reason that on those specials, we couldn't have lots of Cattery people talking is because they feared recriminations. They feared for saying stuff out loud. We can say stuff out loud on here and there will not be a knock at our door tonight. And that is, you know, an amazing freedom to have. Uh, yes, producer Joel says, let's end part two. Already a lot for the lawyers to go at, he says. So uh, we will do that and we'll look ahead to tomorrow's games in just a second. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, before we talk about tomorrow's games, actually, uh, we're talking about the coverage. Um, I was watching BBC One. That's what I feel like at the World Cup, with my apologies to Mark Pugac, who is a tremendous broadcaster. That's what I err to BBC One when it happens. I actually thought I was quite impressed, Barry, with, with the way they started uh, the coverage today. I tweeted that and not everyone agreed with me. A lot of people would have said, we've had enough of that. I just want to know who's playing in holding mid for Qatar. But I, I, I don't know how you found it. Yeah, I'd imagine the people who tweeted that didn't care less who was playing holding mid in for Qatar. And if they'd seen the name of the holding midfielder, wouldn't have known him from a hole in the ground. Yeah, I, I went to the mass blocking spree on the on that, that tweet, just pre-match cleanser. I thought they, they handled it as well as they could. They, they, there was some weird noise in the background, like someone banging cutlery off a plate or maybe the studio was still being built around them. They started with a montage, perfunctory questions about the football. Interestingly, none of the pundits present tipped England. Then they had the serious stuff. They had a representative from the Football Supporters Association. They had uh, a report on England, a report on Wales, and, and then they got on with the game. They they didn't show the opening ceremony, um, and it doesn't seem to have been particularly good from the bits I saw. And I also saw a few clips from the BN Sports coverage, interestingly, where uh, Gary Neville and John Terry and Andy Gray were the pundits alongside Keezy, uh, Richard Keyes. And Gary Neville, as he said he would, he, he got stuck into Infantino and FIFA. It'd be interesting to see if he's invited back <laughs> for another game. But yeah, he he he, he cut loose and, and stuck the boot in. So he said he would and a lot of people doubted him, but he, he did. So I still don't think he should be taking their dime, but that's, you know, for him to decide. Yeah, I, th- I thought BBC's coverage was pretty good. Just I think the, the decision to not show the opening ceremony, I applaud because it's always massively boring <laughs> and a total waste of time. I'd much rather see people have a discussion both about the football and on the background. I missed most of it because I decided looking ahead at the next few weeks, my, my work-life balance is going to be even more messed up than usual. So I'm excited to take my long-suffering girlfriend for a big lunch uh, and and just came in in time for the game and just decided to ignore all of it. But yeah, oh, not showing the opening ceremony, full marks for me. We should never show it. It's always nonsense. On the subject of uh, um, the current Mrs. Sividson, Lars, we met her after the live show. Absolute delight. She is, Lars, I'd like to say. And and thank you to everyone who came to the live show. I hope you enjoyed Mark Langdon dressed as Postman Pat because I really did. <laughs> uh, let's look ahead to England-Iran. Uh, uh, James Madison missed training, so he's uh, not going to play. Kyle Walker is out. Given, I just sort of sense, Barry, that, you know, we know how Iran are going to set up. It's going to be turgid. It's going to be tiring. We chatted to Mark Langdon on the radio 
today. Don't know how he was dressed uh, this morning. But, um, you know, he was saying they will time waste from minute one. There'll be a lot of shithousery. You can just feel nil-nil after 60 minutes and Southgate out trending and somebody being furious with Luke Shaw or Kieran Trippier for some reason. Yeah, it's a game I expect England to win. And it's also a game I would not be hugely surprised to see them draw or lose. I think ideally in a perfect world, they'll score an early goal, maybe go 2-0 up and that'll be that. They'll win it comfortably. But as you say, the longer the game goes on without them scoring or if, heaven forfend, they go a goal behind, which isn't out of the question, you know, how how calm will the players be? How jittery will they get? Southgate won't care what the reaction is on Twitter during the game or I'd imagine after the game. He probably won't even look or check or ask to be informed. It, it is obviously a game England should win comfortably. I, I would not bet anything resembling a huge amount of money on them doing so. Do you, Barry, when you said in a perfect world, they'd be 2-0 up early, do you mean in their perfect world or in your perfect world? I mean, in your perfect world, surely, you know, a last-minute a last minute defeat is the absolute perfect game, isn't it? I was uh, speaking in the, the royal perfect world, I suppose, rather than my own. Right, very good of you, very good of you. I, I would like to add, I think, I think um, the good Mr. Langdon is spot on, as he always is, uh, about the sort of various qualities of, of Iran. I expect him to be very, very solid. But I would also add, in Mediterranean, they have a genuinely excellent striker. You know, he's, he does a great job leading the line for Porto, scored 20 goals in the Portuguese League last season, has scored five goals in five games in the Champions League this season. So if they do manage to create a chance or two, you know, they got someone up there who, who can take them. So, so I know England are massive favorites for this. And listen, on paper, they're a far, far superior team. But you got to be careful. Like this is this is World Cup banana skin written all over this game. I, I have to say, and 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 if they do, yeah, it would be, you know, it's it's a, it's a dangerous one, is what I'd say going into it. And listen, maybe they'll get, you know, maybe Eric Dyer heads in a corner after five minutes, and it's all going to plan. And it's all fine. This could get it could get awkward. Lars, who do you who do you think? I don't actually name England starting eleven, but but there are a few. I guess there's always who's going to be alongside Harry Kane. One Sterling has always done well for England. You imagine he would start, even though he's not in great form. Um, and form is worth talking about since it was only a week ago that they last played in the Premier League. Sterling and perhaps Foden. I don't know. It would be fascinating to see Jude Bellingham play. And then the sort of uh, there's no Carl Walker, so that that does change who the three might be at the back. Yeah, I, I would expect Rice and Bellingham in midfield. I guess I wonder if, you know, Southgate tends to to plan for the different games in the group stage, right? So it, in this one, I think there's a case to be made that you could go three or four at the back uh, because Iran are going to sit back probably. So, so you might, you know, have that extra attacking midfielder on, which would uh, raise the possibility of maybe playing Grealish, maybe playing Foden and Mount, you know, some sort of solution there. But if it's the typical 3-4-3, three, I, I would imagine Rice and Bellingham in midfield. Sterling I would start with Kane. And then the last one is the big question mark. And that could be either one out of Mount and Saka, Foden. You know, the, the, that is the big, that's the position where I have a big, where I really don't know where he's going. Um, could, could be Mount. Mount is very good. He's a steady guy. Um, we'll see. I'm curious to know, are, are the people of Iran behind their team? Because Ahmed Jalili, the comedian uh, who's Anglo-Iranian, he posted an interesting clip on Twitter this morning saying that 
Iran should have been thrown out of the tournament, uh, that they're providing weaponry to drones and such like missiles to, to Russia, that there's a gender civil war going on in Iran at the moment. And he called on, uh, he, he accused the players of kowtowing to the Iranian president, is it whoever's in charge, I can't remember his name, and and urged any England, American or Welsh players who scored against him to do the, the celebration you know, holding the hair up and snipping it, which is taken off in Iran in those protests at the moment. We also had a tweet uh, from Mike Ward on that saying we should flag up, and he's right to say so, flag up Iran defender Eshan Haisafi, who who spoke uh, a little bit about the situation ahead of the game and said that, uh, he said, we have to accept that the conditions in our country are not right and our people are not happy. And said before everything else, I would like to express my condolences to all the bereaved families. They should know we are with them, we support them, we sympathize with them. There's obviously a massively complicated uh, situation, which frankly I don't feel qualified to say anything about, really, except to say that it must be a very, very strange one for the players on top of all the pressures of playing a World Cup. It's actually it's a totally fascinating story. And um, Barry's right to point to Ahmed, who uh, knows his stuff much better than we do. And there are places where you will obviously find out more about what exactly is happening in Iran than, than this football podcast, Lars. Yeah, but I also want to add, like the player who I was quoting there, I mean, he's based in, in Greece, for uh, places club football in Greece, but I mean, he'll have family in the country. I mean, just uh, incredibly brave to say anything, really, uh, given the conditions and how fraught it all is. So, you know, good on him. Was there a time, Troy, where football was more straightforward? Or was I just 10 years old? You know, where like... You just all you worried about was a football sticker and <laughs> your shoot league ladders, and you know there was just, you know it, was it always this bleak and I just didn't really, or you know not this bleak or just it didn't feel as connected to the rest of the world. I guess. Are you saying that you haven't got your World Cup sticker book this year? Is that what you're saying? I haven't. I haven't got my sticker book. Maybe that's what the problem is. But I just, I just think there's an element of how social media and how the media works now. It it has. It has a lot of downsides and we talk a lot about the downsides, but one of the upsides is that marginalized groups and across the world in various settings are much more able to have speak up than before. Yeah. So when they were going to, to having, I forget, the, when we had the World Cup in Argentina with the Junta and all that stuff, like we weren't hearing from the people who were suffering there on Twitter. Like it was, you know, it, we're hearing these voices much more and it's making us much more aware of what's going on in the world. And obviously it presents moral challenges to the rest of us that we didn't have to deal with before. I think that's the thing. I think when we were younger, um, we weren't in, in, involved in the issues. And in a matter of fact, a lot of the issues were not even in the public domain and you couldn't speak about your experiences of, of going to football or, you know, being in a football stadium because they were literally just dismissed. There was silent voice. But the more, um, you know, ultimately society has moved in the, the way that it has. And, and as Lars has quite rightly pointed out, the more that people can vocalise their opinions on social media platforms, whereas before they had no space to, to vocalise those, then I think we then have to become conscious of of the experiences of everyone that is part of a marginalised group and, and, you know, whilst wanting to, to go and support their, their favourite team, their country, or just investing in, in the sport that we love, sometimes it's very, very difficult. And I think that's the ignorance of Infantino there in regards to what, what he was alluding to earlier as well. Back on the pitch, uh, USA played Wales, Barry. Uh, give us your uh, expert one-minute preview of this. It's, it's far from expert. probably won't last a minute. I'm excited about Wales in, in this tournament and, and 
I think mainly because I'm jealous of what they have because it's very similar to what Ireland used to have under Jack Charlton. There's a togetherness in that camp that they, they all seem to prefer playing for Wales than they do playing just their club football. They love coming together. Even when players are injured, they get involved. I love the fact that they brought Chris Gunter and Johnny Williams, who are both playing League Two football, both getting on. Probably won't, might may not get a minute between them, but they've been part of the journey and there was no way Rob Page was ever going to leave them out, even though there were possibly better options. I love the, the anthem they have, Hani Da, I think it's called or whatever. That I've seen the video for that countless times. It gets me every time, uh, even though I'm not Welsh and I barely understand a word of it. I love that uh, Michael Sheen speech on a league of their own. It seemed to be off the cuff, but even if it wasn't, that was just awe-inspiring. So, yeah, I'm quite jealous of Wales. Will they be good enough to get out of the group? I think they might. I, I we, We've heard that the USA are very young and energetic, and they obviously have some very good players. But Wales have some very good players too. My concern would be that Wales have a couple of their, their biggest names, namely Aaron Ramsey, Gareth Bale, Joe Allen. Yeah, Joe Allen's definitely out. Yeah, yeah. well, Joe Allen's out for tomorrow. But none of them have match fitness. But that hasn't seemed to matter in the past. I think it could matter this time in the heat. But um, good luck to Wales, with apologies to our constantly aggrieved American listeners. <laughs> so I can talk about the US for a little bit, if we have time, because it's a, it's a strange squad in a sense, because in one way... In one way, it's a better squad than they've ever had because they have more players than we're used to seeing who play for top teams in Europe or good teams in Europe, at least. And and most of them are young as well, so it's pretty exciting. Like uh, Weston McKenney, Tyler Adams, Yunus Musa, and mid, if that's the midfield, that they all play for good teams. You know, Brendan Aronson, we've seen in the Premier League this season, very good player. You know, Pulisic, we know at his best, is very, very good. Serginho Dest has played for Barcelona, is at Milan now. You can go through them all. But, but I also, I kind of harken back to the 2014 team, and maybe that's just nostalgia on my part, but there you had some like Jermaine Jones and Kyle Beckerman just kicking the crap out of everyone in midfield and, and Clint Tebsey doing bits up front. And that just seemed like a more solid uh, way to, to go about a tournament. I, I, I feel with this group, I worry in I worry at both ends of the pitch that they don't have an outstanding number nine. I know Jesus Ferreira was really good for FC Dallas this season. Is he good enough to score a bunch of goals in the World Cup? I don't know. And they don't like this. There's no center half pairing that's super convincing. And weirdly for the US, they don't have like a standout good goalkeeper. So, so I feel like in terms of what you look for in tournament teams, at least with me, is teams are solid at the back and can and can and have guys who can win games up front. And that's like the opposite of what the US is now. They've got like good stuff in midfield, but yeah. I mean, surely, surely there is a forty-five-year-old uh, goalkeeper, bald American who listens to rock music in goal. For I mean, who is it? Was it Zach Steffen? Who is it? It's very confusing. Uh, I think it's Matt Turner who's starting, and uh, yeah, he's definitely not that. Is that Arsenal? Arsenal second keeper, is he? Yeah. Right. Okay. We will cover Senegal Netherlands with apologies to uh, fans of both sides uh, on tomorrow's pod. Uh, Karen Benzema out for the 
uh, uh, entire tournament, um, uh, which is a, a blow, obviously, for France, given that he's got the Ballon d'Or. It's not a player you want to lose, is it? Uh, Peter says, in other news, is Everton's Sydney Super Cup win over Celtic on penalties after a goalless draw with no shots on target? Again, the first sign of Frank Lampard rising Phoenix-like from the ashes. Who knew that... Uh, Everton were playing Celtic in Sydney. Um, but Asmir Begovic afterwards said that Everton's penalty shootout victory over Celtic will help rebuild his side's confidence. And <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there, there you go. I think you do this on purpose. <laughs> I'm sure you do this on purpose. <laughs> Charlie says, uh, uh, what would the panel change to get Gillingham scoring? 23rd in League Two have scored 6-18. and 18. Only one of those not from a set piece. Do they need Big Sam or is it too big a job for him? Uh, Barry, how much have you been focusing on Gillingham's form over the past couple of days? Gillingham continues to be the one town and football club in England that I, I just know nothing about. I have, I've, I'm not even the worst because James Richardson used to refer to them as Gillingham. <laughs> so I feel, yeah, I don't want to patronise Gillingham or Gillingham indeed. But, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't point. I don't know where it is. I, I don't know anything about Gillingham. Well, I, I will point in the direction of um, uh, Quickly Kevin's episode with Joe Wilkinson um, because he is the uh, famous Gillingham fan. And it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant episode. And producer Joel writes, he grew up there. So there we go. <laughs> Next time, you know, have a chat about Gillingham in great detail. Tomorrow, uh, we will part one will be my life in Gillingham with uh, producer Joel. And then we'll get on to England, Iran. But look, that'll do for today's podcast. Actually, just now, now that you mentioned producer Joel, uh, Max, uh, myself and some friends were having a couple of quiet drinks in our local pub last night where we filmed the famous video of the stool slapping video. And there was a sudden convergence of all these hipster, trendy people who we suspect were in from North London on the pub. And we were most disgruntled because it ruined our peace and quiet. And we just, you know, we don't want anyone else coming to our pub. And and sure. my mate Joe, who, who you met after the show the other night, he went, who are all these wankers? They all look, all the blokes look like producer Joel. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's high praise. Uh, if ever you wanted it, Joel, you can edit Barry as you see fit on today's podcast. That is your choice. Uh, that'll do for today. Um, uh, as the World Cup got underway, we'll be back tomorrow, of course, as we will every game day of the tournament. But for the time being, thank you, Troy. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Lars. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Barry. Thanks. Our Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian.